Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of I Walked with Giants, Jimmy Heath. Jimmy Heath, you've written your autobiography called I Walked with Giants. If someone's watching this and they don't know anything about you, what should they know? That I've been a musician for 60 or 70 years, and a lot of the great performers that they do know are friends of mine, and they are the giants that I've walked with. What kind of music do you play? I'm a jazz musician. That's uh, African-American classical music, if you prefer. What's your instrument? I'm a saxophonist. I played the flute at one time also. But since I got the computer and started writing on the computer, the flute stays in the case. And what do you like about the saxophone? Well, I fell in love with the saxophone as a youngster. My father and mother uh, were musically inclined. My father played the clarinet here in the Quaker City Elks band. My mother was in the marching club with the Elks and she sang in the church choir. So we were privy to have all kinds of uh, recordings in our home. And in fact, uh, uh, that's what interested me was the, the alto saxophone because I had heard uh, a man named Benny Carter and Johnny Hodges, who were the foremost alto players. And Jimmy Dorsey was also in that group, and later Charlie Parker. When did you first pick one up and start playing it? I started playing when I was, uh, my father sent me the saxophone. I was going to high school in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and he sent me the, the alto saxophone one Christmas. It took him a couple years to pay for it. It only cost 125 bucks, but that was very uh, 1941 or something like that. He bought it here in Philadelphia at a place called Ted Burke's on Broad Street. And he sent me the saxophone to North Carolina and I proceeded to take some of the keys off, being an inquisitive young person, and laid them on the side. And I'd pick them and put them back on. I didn't take them all off and lay them there because I'd have never got it back together. But uh, uh, having heard these giants of the music uh, swing and the jazz era, uh, I fell in love with the alto saxophone. Do you still have it? Uh, not that one. When I went to Paris in 1948, I uh, traded that one in. I took it to the Selma factory, Henri Selmer, as he was called, and I had a Kahn saxophone, which was an American-made. But the Henri Selmer is the most renowned saxophone uh, people in the world. So I took it there, and they proceeded to take it and look at it and say, put it over there, and gave me a Selma. For free? Yeah. Why? Well, I'm an American artist. They treat you differently in Europe, you know. If you're coming to Europe, bringing the music of America, 
not their music back to them, Western classical music, but this is a, a creation of the American uh, people. What's a good saxophone? What does it take to make a good saxophone? And could you tell the difference between the, the Selmer and uh, the Khan? Well, the Khan uh, spoke to me uh, very clearly, but the Selma projects to the audience better. That's the, the quality of the, of the Selma saxophone above all others. They've come up with a lot of new ones now, but I still have a, a soprano Selma, I have a alto Selma, I have two tenors. They all Selmas. Do you have a preference, uh, alto, tenor, soprano? Well, I'm basically tenor and soprano now. And once in a while, uh, I'll pick up the alto. That was my first instrument, but uh, I left that to go to the tenor. You know, it seems that uh, in the 40, in the 40s, uh, the fourth instrument hired was the tenor saxophone, not a trombone, not a trumpet. After the rhythm section, the bass, drums, and piano. Then the tenor was in vogue, and it still is. It's, yeah, I think it's more a masculine sound than the sopranos, a little thin, and, you know. When did you decide you were pretty good? Well, I went to Paris in 1948 on a uh, 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 tour with the Grand Coleman Hawkins, as he was known. And I was with a, a group called the Sextet de Bebop. And that was Howard McGee, a trumpeter. And my brother Percy was playing the bass. And a drummer from here who passed away kind of young named Spex Wright. And, uh, you know, that was uh, a pretty important time. I probably uh, didn't sound as mature as I do now <laughs> because I was very nervous when they opened the the curtains at the Theatre Marinet on the Champs-Élysées. And my first time ever on an airplane and, and going to Paris, I was pretty nervous. So I probably had a big, wide vibrato. <laughs> I was like crying. Well, how were European audiences compared to American audiences at the time? Well, it was very, Brian, it was very uh, different because the group that went on before us were French. And the people whistled and screamed. And I said, oh, my God, there's no sense of us going out there because these guys are great. They said, no, monsieur, no, monsieur, when they whistle, it's no good. So they were waiting for us. Well, how popular was jazz in the States at the time? And this was right after World War II? Yes, it was, right after World War II. But jazz was always popular in the big band context during the 30s and 40s. Uh, not that I was in it, I heard it, because my parents had those recordings in the house. You know, Fletcher Henderson or uh, Glenn Miller or Tommy Dorsey. I heard them at the Earl Theater here in Philadelphia. You also say in your book you saw Duke Ellington when you were six years old. Yeah, my, uh, he, he didn't know me, and somebody said last night, but he just rubbed me on my head and said, Sonny, oh, how you doing, Sonny? It's not personal. It was just a, <laughs> now a you, meeting. You mentioned um, two terms, bebop and big band, mm -hmm. and then there's modern jazz. Can you explain the difference between them? Well, bebop is modern jazz. Uh, it had different terms. The media puts these terms on it. It's all jazz, uh, and it's uh, developed into certain styles 
over the years. It's evolved. So from the swing era, with the big bands, uh, like Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and Jimmy Lunsford and other people, Duke Ellington, that was a one way of playing. It didn't emphasize the individual soloist as much as the bebop generation. The music was a little eclectic and it wasn't as danceable. And that wasn't really uh, the right thing to do in retrospect. But it was more concertized when the bebop era, because Dizzy and Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk, who created that style, they were in a small group context. They had all come through the big band era. You know, so with big band people danced and with yes. bebop people sat and listened. Yeah, that was the difference. How big were the bands? Well, the bands were sixteen pieces usually. You had a trombone section, a trumpet section, and a saxophone section, and a rhythm section, and that's what uh, constitutes a big band or a jazz orchestra. You played off sheet music. Oh yes. Did you improvise at all? Yes, but the improvisation was limited because of the ensemble work of the big band. We wouldn't have 15 people sitting there while one person solos for 10 minutes, you know. So it was a, a limiting uh, but, but rewarding experience to be in a big band because it's, it, it learns you how to play together in a section. The saxophone section had its function, the trombone section, each section had their function. The rhythm section is to keep it swinging. So, you know, it uh, was an experience that never can be repeated without the big band. You see, uh, Brian, our big band is the same as the symphony orchestra. That is our largest ensemble. You know, you have all the violins, violas, cello, and all that stuff in the symphony. Well, we have that within the context of that. Uh, ensemble that I mentioned, the big band. And I always say that, uh, you know, if we wanted one person to solo, or two, or three, or up to six sextet, ten tet, you can take it out of the big band, but you can't do the opposite. Well, in a performance like that, when there's 16 musicians or so, and there's somebody up front conducting, are they, do they really, does the band need the conductor up there, or is that mostly for show? Well, it, both. They need them if it's tempo changes. They need them if it's for the endings, the cutoff points. So, you know, you need them, but it's a lot of show. Did you perform with singers very much? I performed with Sarah Vaughan once uh, in Europe, and uh, not many singers. You know, back in my time, the, the band was the feature. The singers was also an addition or icing on the cake. And then somewhere along the way, the singers took over. And then we all were relegated to playing backgrounds for the singers. And that happened uh, during the big band era, I guess. Maybe Sinatra, people like that. You know, he was so powerful. But they used to come up and sing a couple songs. And then the band would play before they came up and after. So it changed along the way. Now the singers are everything. Do you remember the first time you got paid to play music? Yeah. I probably played here in Philadelphia and made a dollar. 
75 cents. But I mean, this is the 40s. People on uh, eight, nine to five jobs weren't making 60 or $70 a week. What was the gig? Well, you know, there were several like that, you know. But I went on the road uh, with a band out in Philadelphia here uh, called Calvin Todd. We bought a school bus and went down south on a tour. And that was quite interesting. I want to read from your, from your book where you talk about that. You say, in 1945, the Calvin Todd Band booked a southern tour, a real starvation tour, where we ate potted ham and crackers just to survive the gig. We bought a bus and began playing gigs that paid 2 or $4. We even paid gigs for 90 cents, or we would get a percentage. That's true. That's the, that's the story. It was very uh, adventurous, to say the least. I mean, we were trying. We played music. And that's always been uh, uh, not a guaranteed situation to be a musical uh, person. Did you ever have a regular job? Yeah. I've had to have regular jobs on occasions. And I worked at Macy's in, in New York. They had a law that if you were a musician, you had to wait six months before you could get the union card over there. And during that six months, you had to, you know, we had to survive, so we did other kinds of work. I worked catering jobs with my, uh, my brother-in-law, who was a caterer, waiting tables and stuff like that. What was a road trip like that, the Starvation Tour? What was it like? A different town every night? Yeah, it was very, very uh, social, because everybody's on the bus, and we all doing laughing and talking all day. And... You know, when we get to the gig, then we got to play. But uh, it's a, a great feeling to be on the road in that kind of situation. And from the Calvin Todd band, I went into a band from Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Nat Tolles, T-O-W-L-E-S. And that was a, a better situation, $15 a night. Well, were you recruited, or did you go looking for... Looking for another band to play in? Well, that one, uh, one of my friends here from Philadelphia named uh, Leach, Felix Leach, a trombonist, he uh, said the band needed alto saxophonists. And uh, myself and another person tried out for the band. And there was a guy named Billy Mitchell, who's also mentioned in the book, from Detroit. And Billy ended up playing with... Uh, uh, Basie and Dizzy's bands. But Billy was in that band, in, in that Toll's band, and he was like the straw boss or the next to the boss of the band. And uh, he had a room that had a little bed in it. And he uh, convinced the band leader, Nat, to hire me. I couldn't read as good as the other guy, but he convinced him to hire me because he had this little bed in his room and I could be his buddy there. So uh, I owe Billy Mitchell that. And eventually I got to be a bigger name probably than him. And he always said, look at the little guy, look what the little guy did. You know, it was just, uh, you know, every, music as anything in life, Brian, is up to your connections. And connections are very important. And that was one of the connections I made with Billy Mitchell, who was from my same uh, year also. He's 1926. 
uh, Coltrane and Miles and all of us from that year, Tony Bennett. And uh, the same year? Yeah, 1926. And, uh, you know, Billy Mitchell and I became really close friends. And by knowing him, I was able to get in that band. And that was the beginning of my career with the big band and my uh, writing music because I took notice of all the arrangements that we were playing beside the stock arrangements that you could buy for a dollar. You could buy, I remember, uh, Laura, da 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 da, by arrangement on Laura for, for a big band for 75 or a dollar. So then there were people who were writing special arrangements, original stuff. And that's where I took notice of the writing and begun to write. And in fact, there was a guy named Frank Greer that had been in that band who nobody's ever heard of. And uh, Neil Hefty, who ended up writing for Woody Herman, Count Basie, and all that, was uh, living, I think he maybe been born in Omaha, where the band was headquartered. And he would go on the bus for nothing and travel when we go around the Midwest and all the states just to check out Frank Greer's writing. And Neil Hefty got to be a big name. So that was a connection he made that was very uh, productive in his life. Do you still write now? Oh, I write all the time. How do you write? Well, I write on the computer now. How do you do that? Well. There's a program called Finale that I got, oh, when I started teaching at Queens College in, oh, 1986 or 87. And I found I could get this Mac computer real cheap, SE, which was like looking at a postcard. The screen was so small. <clears throat> but the Finale program was available with a bunch of manuals that thick. And I learned how to write in this Finale, now it's updated every year. I have now Finale 2010 upgrades every year. See, they keep you buying. Uh, but it is a program that you can use to edit. And I always um, wonder, and I'm amazed at people like Duke Ellington, who didn't have the computer, and they were able to write such great arrangements. However, Clark Terry, who I, a friend of mine, and was playing with Duke, said that Duke would bring in these arrangements and play them, and then he wouldn't like it. Say, so guess I passed that back in, and he'd tear it up. But with the computer, Brian, you can edit. If you have a counterpoint line that you, you got your melody line, then you write a counter line. And uh, if you don't like it, you say delete. And you put in another line till you find one you like. And then when you get the breath of life with the people playing, after you get it written and take it into the band, then it comes to light. The uh, computer writing music, you got the symphonic programs, you got all these programs, jazz band programs. But, you know, it uh, sounds like a glorified accordion when you play it back at home. But when you get to the people playing it, then it sounds like real music. Does and it ever sound different than you expected it to sound when the musicians play it? It always sounds different. 
sounds better. That's the advantage of, of having a computer. It's an editing device. Did you compose before you had a computer? Oh, yeah. What was that like? Well, it was tedious. And you had to write the music by hand. And, you know, and you had to take it in to somebody and approve of it. Also, you know, you had, it, it took longer. You know, if you, you played something on your saxophone and you like that melody, and then you write that melody out, then you have to write a counter line to that melody. So if the melody's in the, the saxophone section, and then your counter line's in the brass section, you've you got to write all of that down. And you've got to make sure you've got everything correct there. You write in concert key. That's in the, in the piano key. But the computer, I can write it in concert key and push buttons and transpose it to each instrument. So it's an advantage of having a computer. When you composed before you had a computer, did you have your sax in your hand to play along as you wrote it? No, the piano. See, when I, was, when I left the Nat Tolles band and came back to Philadelphia, uh, I met Dizzy Gillespie. He came here, played at the Elates Ballroom, I think it is, Broad and Fitzwater. And I went to hear the band. And my mother would always tell, me, tell us, because there's three musicians in the family. My brother Percy played the bass, and my brother Tootie played the drums, Albert. So we were privy to have the option of bringing the, the band members who we liked to the house, and my mother would cook some food for them. So Dizzy came to my house, and uh, he said, if you're going to write music, you've got to learn keyboard. You've got to learn the piano. So I proceeded uh, to learn the piano. And I'm on the piano practically every day, as well as the saxophone and the computer. So it's a combination now of things. Where'd you live in Philly? I lived on, uh, I was born in West Philly, 5710 Ludlow Street, in the house. I was in a hurry to get here. I jumped out in the house. My grandmother was a, a midwife. Uh, and we lived in several small streets in South Philly after we moved from West Philly. Garnett Street, Garrett Street. Um, and then we eventually moved to Federal Street and bought a house, my father and, and us together bought a house on 1927 Federal. And that house is still there. I pass it for nostalgic reasons sometimes just to look at it. You you played in a band with your two brothers. That was after you had started as a professional? Well, my brother Percy had started as a violinist. He's older than you? Yes, he's uh, about three years older than me. Passed away in 2005. He was the one who had the reputation as uh, being a performer with the Modern Jazz Quartet, which was a huge, uh, had huge popularity, especially in Europe and around the world. But uh, he started on violin. And my father offered each child uh, their choice of instrument. I had a sister who was older than Percy, and she started to play the piano and took a few lessons until she met boys. And that was the end of her pianist career. And then Percy the violin, and then me the saxophone, and my younger brother went to school here in Philly, uh, and he uh, started out with a trombone. He said, 
he put that down. He wanted to be to play drums from the beginning, but somebody already was on the drums. So he took the trombone. And eventually he said there was too much spit coming out of that <laughs> he didn't like. So he gave that up and now he's a drummer. And uh, you know, the family was uh, music oriented. You, did you play together as a band when you were younger? Not really young. Me and Percy did. We went to Paris. Uh, Percy was with me when we went to Paris with Howard McGee in 1948. But Tootie was uh, nine years younger, so he didn't come along to play with the Heath brothers. Much later, we got together as a family. How'd you get along, three brothers playing in the well, same band? Well, uh, you know, we argued, like all brothers, but we had some sibling rivalry, too. Not just all rivalry. <laughs> Was one of you the boss? Well, my brother, the older Percy, he tried to be the boss. I would I always tell him, Brian, say, wait a minute, you are Percy Jr., you are not my father. My father's senior. So you stop telling me what to do. Now, your, your book is called I Walked with Giants. First of all, why did you decide to do an autobiography? Well, I, I, I really wanted to leave my story here because I had an uh, up and down story in life that I wanted to tell the good things that happened to me and all of the accolades and awards that I've received, and the bad part of being a drug addict and uh, going to prison. Uh, I got arrested here for, you know, uh, selling heroin, because I was an addict, and that's what, you, what they call an addict peddler, because I wasn't making money off drugs. I was just turning it into more for myself. If I sell some to you, then I can get two bags for myself. So, and I got in some serious trouble doing that, and they put me in Lewisburg Penitentiary, uh, the federal government. I remember the judge's name was Judge Lord, and I was never religious. My mother was, but I prayed. I said, oh, my God, Judge Lord. And Judge Lord sentenced me to six years on the first count, six years on the second count, six years on the third count, six years on the fourth count, six years on the fifth count, and he said to run consecutively, or uh, concurrently, not consecutively. I would have been in 36 years. I'm, that's my uh, slip there. <laughs> but, and then he said on the sixth count, I impose a $100 fine. So that meant concurrently, I only did four years and five months in Lewisburg. A lot of good things happened. What good happened in prison? Well, the uh, man named, uh, uh, he came into the prison. I had the band because I was a professional already before I went. You had a band in prison? Bruce Lundvall, yeah, came into the prison. He was going to Bucknell College. He ended up being the president of the jazz division of Columbia Records. And in 1978 or something, after I came home in 59 and changed my life completely around, I uh, uh, signed up, the Heath Brothers, we signed up with Columbia Records, which is the biggest record company at, a, at that time in the world. And he had come to Lewisburg to hear me perform there, having heard me play with Miles Davis in 53 and 
on recordings before I went away in 55. So that's one good thing that came from it. The other good thing is it taught me a hell of a lesson to never use drugs again. And I've been home from prison since 59, and I never went that way again. How'd you get involved in heroin in the first place? Well, it was uh, so readily available. I really got into heroin because of uh, having my pianist take my girlfriend away from me. And uh, I, had to, I had intended we were engaged to get married, and we had a son. And uh, I, I helped him to get with Dizzy's band. And next thing I know, she was in New York hanging out with him. And I said, oh, my God. And it, I was on a down from romance. And this drummer that was with Dizzy named Teddy Stewart from Kansas City. Teddy said, man, I got something to give you a lift. And he put this hair on, and I snorted in my nose. And that was something I should have never done. It took me all six or seven years, including the four and a half in prison, to get rid of that habit that I got into. Did I read this right, that you got fired from Dizzy Gillespie's band because of... Yeah, drugs? well, that was, that was... We all were in the club at Silhouette in Chicago with Dizzy. And Coltrane and Spex Wright, the drummer I was talking about, uh, and myself were down in the basement doing intermission. And I forgot, I think maybe it's Coltrane or Specs, one of us, was down there shooting up. And Dizzy came down because it was time for us to get back on the stage. And he said, all of you MFs are fired. And he fired us. But Coltrane seemed to beg his way back in because he had stopped and he was just drinking a lot. And he stayed a little longer than I did. I got fired, and Specs Wright, we got fired. And that's when I came back to Philly and started playing the tenor saxophone. And when you got out of prison, was it hard to get back into the music scene, and had music changed at all while you were in? Yes, music had changed. I joined Miles because Coltrane had left Miles then in 59, and uh, Miles got me back, having recorded with him in 53. He got me back, so I flew out to California and joined his band, and he was playing in a modal fashion, which was different than the way we had been playing before I went away. And it took me a while to get used to it, but I was so unfortunate that the probation officer, Mr. Marrow, he says, uh, well, we were coming back from L.A., and going to Chicago to play the festival, Playboy Festival or something. And he says, well, I, when you come home, just report back in. So when I came back to Philly and reported back to him, he said, I got orders that you should stay within a 90-mile radius of Philadelphia. And he grounded me. And Miles tried his best to get me back on the road and they wouldn't hear it at all. He knew some people, and he was trying to pull strings, but I had to serve the rest of my, what they call, conditional release, not parole. You get parole before you're sentenced, but after you get sentenced, they call it conditional release. And I had to, this tag on me, so I had to get uh, 
permission from the pro probation officer when I wanted to go to New York to record. And 24-hour, I wrote a composition called 24-hour leave because they allowed me to go to New York and record because I had signed a record contract. And I would come back to Philly in 24 hours after I recorded. But after the, the probational uh, conditional release was over, then I was, you know, so-called free, but uh, the stigma of being a drug addict and it hangs on you for a long time. I want to read you something out of the, you mentioned uh, playing in modal. And you have a, a scene here where you're talking to, I guess, Miles Davis, and you're talk, talking about the Dorian mode. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, as part of it, uh, you write, the, the other chords on the top could be anything on the white keys, a D minor chord, an F Lydian, a G dominant seventh, an A minor seventh, or a B diminished seventh, all in the key of C. How did you learn all that music theory, and is it necessary to play jazz? To oh, yeah. Sure. you got to learn everything. Yeah, to be a composer and an improviser, you have a lots of material. The only thing different in Western classical studies is the fact that they memorize long concertis and everything. But we memorize hundreds of songs. I can play the chords and, and harmonies to over two or three hundred songs on the piano. So we have to absorb all of that, the same as Western classical musicians. Do you remember everything you've written? If you heard a tune no. that you wrote years ago, would you recognize it? No, I got about 150 compositions. I, I can't remember them all. It would take me a while, but they, they would come back. But then I started writing uh, extended works, uh, uh, longer pieces, uh, uh, suites and things like that. And I studied uh, some more. To, to be able to do that. I studied from a man from Leipzig, Germany, named uh, Professor Rudolf Schramm, who taught at NYU in New York. I, I studied from him privately. Now, his uh, claim to fame is that he was a musical director for Eleanor Roosevelt's radio show or something, and his wife was a ballet dancer, and she came over here from Germany. And uh, Professor Schramm had a system called the Schillinger system, which is a number system. I think Gershwin studied Schillinger and a lot of other people who you know. And I studied that system too. He taught it at NYU. And uh, that uh, kind of uh, added to what I had already learned. When I went to SRAM, I had already written for recordings and all that and for different size ensembles. But this just gave me more insight into string writing and uh, choir and different forms and different ensembles. So it was uh, two years of a great experience and he really liked me. He said I was a, a hard worker. You said at the start of this conversation that you have done some teaching at Queens College. Yeah. How do you teach? Aaron Copeland School of Music. I taught there 10 years. Um, well, the same thing I just got through telling you. Well, everybody, when they come, this was a, a, a master's degree program. So all of the students come from around the world. They already have a bachelor's degree. So they've been through the rudiments and the, the exercises of being able to read music and all of that. Now you have to create your own music. Do you talk composition? 
oh, teach yeah. composition? I taught composition and saxophone at Queens College. Uh, a composition, I taught some of the principles that I learned from the Schillinger system, from traditional harmony, you know, and uh, over a period of time, I had acquired a, a lot of knowledge about writing. I was around, you know, mentors who uh, wrote for the big bands, and I would always ask questions, and people were very good about if you were interested in something that they liked, like if somebody asked me something now, I give it to them, you know. So it's a continuum, and it's the connections that I've been talking about over and over, connections that people like Gil Fuller, he studied Schillinger too, and he was the orchestrator for Dizzy Gillespie's band, and I studied some from him, and he would show me things. Tad Dameron, these are people that were writing for Dizzy Gillespie's band. Uh, the, uh, you know, George Russell was another guy who had a, a system, Lydian concept of tonal organization. You know, he taught at uh, UMass, uh, you know, uh, New England Conservatory. So, you know, it's a matter of, of studying and it's a matter of being around those people who would show you things, mentors mentors and making that connection and consequently I became uh, an orchestrator. I wrote one symphonic work. <clears throat> it's titled uh, Three Ears and it was commissioned by Queens College when I got there. And uh, they, excuse me, they paid me on a commission $3,000. It cost more than that to get it copied. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because uh, it was a, a, a labor of love. So I had this one section, you know, three ears. I say you hear music with three ears. You hear it with your mind. You hear it with your heart. And some people hear music with their body. So these are the three ears. The body's ear, the mind's ear, and the heart's ear. So that's why I call this uh, peace three ears, and it was performed twice. It was performed when I first wrote it, and that wasn't quite as successful as when I became 80 years old. They, they redid it at Queens College. Do you remember what your best payday was as a musician? Oh yeah, sometimes you make eight, ten thousand dollars That's pretty good. For one concert? Uh, yeah, but that's a group, you know. And divided up. It's not like Miles. Miles was a high-paid jazz person. I think he probably made more money than Dizzy Gillespie did. Oscar Peterson used to make $10,000 a concert doing solo piano. You know, but this is not in the ball game with uh, your popular music. Do you remember a particular concert where you were up on stage performing and just thought, man, we've really got it tonight. Things are really clicking. Yeah, you sometimes you hit that that special moment of groove and you get everything right. And, uh, and other times you uh, use your professionalism to get by. You do pretty good. I mean, there's a certain level we always maintain because we've done so much homework, practice all the time. But there are certain periods when you get to 
a climax that is uh, surprising to you. It just comes. And, you know, uh, improvisation is uh, the ability to stand on your feet and create music, ideas that would come, and, and climax that, uh, that the audience can feel. You know, I want to give you an example of what I witnessed. It was on a concert for Ella Fitzgerald at the Lincoln Center when David Dinkins was the mayor of New York. And there were all kinds of personalities there. But this one thing was Itzhak Perlman and uh, Oscar Peterson. And of course, they played uh, Gershwin Summertime, and Itzhak played it just beautiful, the melody. And after he played the melody, Oscar Peterson continued to improvise and create his own ideas and build and build. And Itzhak was looking at him like, because he didn't improvise. This is a great uh, music style that uh, is American. It is the most democratic music, Brian, that's ever been created because everybody in the group is allowed to speak their piece musically and tell their story. That's why, you know, uh, it's difficult for audiences who are not musically trained as European audiences or Japanese audiences. America's uh, musical uh, training in schools is lacking. Well, if someone's watching this and they, they really don't know a whole lot about jazz, how, how should they start if they want to learn more? Well, they just get some records because it's very difficult to not have a historic background. They should start out by listening to Louis Armstrong and people from the New Orleans early jazz, uh, Jelly Roll Morton and people like that, and Sidney Bechet, who was very famous in, in Paris. They got statues over there for, and he's from New Orleans, a soprano saxophone player. And the, you know, when you see books in Europe written about jazz, and you don't see a lot of them here, that was what prompted me. But there are a lot of exercise books and a lot of books being written now. But the schools, the schools, are, the training is lacking. What are the recordings of yours that people should listen to? Well, if they like big band music and they could get it, uh, Bill Cosby produced uh, the one called Little Man Big Band uh, about 10, 15 years ago on um, Verve Records, and it is uh, was nominated for a Grammy, and. That's a big band context. Now we have Heath Brothers. We have small group things. We, I also have another big band record a few years ago called Turn Up the Heath. Uh, small group, we had the Heath Brothers. I have records on my own name, on Steeplechase label from Europe, Denmark. Uh, the last one we have, it just came out last year, is called Endurance. It's with me and my brother. Uh, Tootie on the drums, Albert, and it's dedicated to Percy, who passed 2005, my brother. And that's a quartet record. And, you know, uh, I think uh, if people would listen to those recordings, they would learn what the evolution is about and what the music means, you know, because 
in schools, they'll bring a string quartet in for you to hear, and you'll understand how to listen to Western classical music, but they don't do that with the Afro-American classical music. You mentioned Bill Cosby, and he wrote the foreword for this book. How'd that come about? How'd you get to know him? Well, Bill uh, was, it was a place down at Broad and Pine or, or, or no, maybe Broad and Locust or Spruce, called the Underground. And Bill, I think, was just getting out of Temple. And they had three different rooms in this venue. And one was where the jazz was being played. And one was where they had some girls dancing or something. And then they had a bar. And Cosby was telling jokes across the bar. I think he was bartending. And I had the gig in the, in the, in the big jazz room. And I always tell Bill, I say, you know, I had the gig when you crossed the bar. He said, yeah, but I got the gig now. <laughs> I say, you're right. Because he had me on his show. He just had me to perform with him at the uh, uh, Mark Twain uh, Award for Comedy that Bill got about uh, two months ago at the Kennedy Center. And... Uh, Besides the comedians that were there, Seinfeld, Chris Rock, uh, and others, Dick Gregory and other comedians, uh, he had me to play. And uh, it was very, very nice. He's had me on the show. And, you know, I've uh, opened for him in different venues, like in California. And before, when he was on, right after I Spy, before he got the Cosby Show. Then I played on the Cosby Show a couple of times. So we've been friends a long time. Uh, last week I played uh, at the Blue Note in New York with my big band. And Cosby, of course, came the opening night. And uh, it was uh, my wife and I's golden wedding anniversary that week. And he bought 100 roses. I never seen, <laughs> could hardly carry them. 50 apiece for me and my wife, Mona. Tell me about your wife. Well, we got married, oh, six months or more. Let me see. I got out of prison in May on May 21st of 1959, and my brother, Percy, introduced me to my wife, Mona, who's a jazz fan, and she was an artist from University of Pennsylvania, most creative in her class of 56. And we struck it right away, and we got married uh, February the 4th of 1960. So that's exactly 50 years ago. And it's an interracial marriage? Yes, it is. How did her family Before feel Before Obama, I would say. <laughs> How did her family feel about that? Well, they didn't feel too good about it. Her father was Canadian, and her mother was from New Jersey. <clears throat> And her mother really went along with her father. Whatever he said was the law. And I never met this man. But after he passed away, me and mom uh, got to be really great friends, and she admired me. And she used to brag, oh, my, my daughter Mona married a college professor, not the music, <laughs> but the college, college professor part she liked. And... Uh, Mom Alice was a wonderful lady. We had a great time until she passed. Her. She was about 91 or something when she passed. How'd your family react to the marriage? 
Oh, we lived in my mother and father's home on Federal Street until we were able to move to New York and get our own place. So they went along with it because my brother Percy had been married interracially too. And he stayed married uh, 50, maybe more, 55 years before he passed. So we have a history of staying. And you and Mona have a daughter? We have a daughter and a son. We have a daughter who's, uh, uh, what does she call her? She's got such a long title. Uh, I call her lab supervisor, director of the lab or something, executive director of the lab in DeKalb County Medical Center. They call it DeKalb because it's in Atlanta. They leave the L out, DeKalb, we call it, DeKalb County medical center. I say, girl, you're talking mighty country since you moved to Atlanta. But she's doing quite well. And your son? Well, he's back home with us. And he works. And he's a hobby king. He works in a hobby shop. And he tries everything they make. It's pretty good that his mom's good looking and his daddy's rich. <laughs> Hush, little baby, don't you cry. <laughs> But he's 6'2 uh, he's, uh, and 220 or something like that, big guy. And he's, uh, you know, he's a nice kid. He never got in any trouble. And he's, uh, he just went out to Utah or something, went snowboarding. And you mentioned earlier your son Matume? Matume, yeah. Matume. He's a musician also? Yeah, Matume is the big uh, star of the family. He wrote uh, for Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway a song called The Closer I Get to You, which was number two in the world under the Bee Gees, Staying Alive. The closer I get to you, the way you make me feel over and over again. You never heard that? Mm -hmm. That's a big hit. Yeah. Then he had others. He's got about four or five gold records. Uh, Stephanie Mills. Oh, I never had love like this before. He's a songwriter. And... Uh, He's on the air in New York now, on the, on the uh, radio, every Sunday doing a show called Open Line. Uh, getting back to your recordings, uh, mm -hmm. what are you, when did you start doing recordings? And The first under my name was in 1959. After I got home, I signed with Riverside Records. But I had recorded with Miles and people before I went away. I recorded in Paris with uh, Howard McGee in 1948 in May when we went. And on that, I played about eight bars. I surrendered there on a record that is Earl Garner on the piano. So I had my first recording, I guess, was 1948 with, some other, with other people. You know, I had recorded with Dizzy and his band, but my own record, under my name was was 59. And since that time, I've been on, oh, I guess I made about six or seven albums with Riverside. And then I got uh, with CBS, and we did three or four with CBS. And I've been with other labels, you know, since then. And the latest is a, a Jazz Legacy Productions. It's called Endurance. Any of them sell very well? Uh... I think the uh, the biggest sellers were CBS Records with Columbia. What's a recording session like for you? 
Well, a recording session for a jazz musician is entirely different than the manufactured music of the uh, so-called popular music. They go in the studio and put the rhythm tracks down, and maybe two weeks later they'll come back and put the background track, and then the artist comes in and sings on top, and it's all on top of a recording. Where in jazz recordings, like uh, you go in the studio and you make it, you may make a, a whole album, 60 minutes of music in one day. Because you know what you're doing when you get there, and you're not stacking up uh, one idea on top of the other. It's like uh, manufactured music, you know? Did you improvising while you're recording? You got to. That's part of our genre. We have to improvise or it's not jazz. Is it a problem if you do an improvisation during a recording that that sort of becomes part of the thing, part of the song as opposed to an, an improvisation? Yeah, well, that has become a problem with some uh, big hit records, like Flying Home by Lionel Hampton. Uh, the saxophone solo would have to be repeated, you know, and then you could change. But you're stuck with that solo that you put on the record if people get so they like. And then the, there were people who come up with this jazz vocalizing where they would put words to your solo if it was a big hit record. Like James Moody with Moody's uh, Mood for Love. And so he has to sing that same melody all the time. Are you a better musician now than you were years ago? Definitely. I've been working on it for 50, 60 years. Come on. And I'm at it every day, Brian. How much do you practice? I practice every day. Maybe uh, some days I miss. I'm on the piano doing some or writing on the computer. But music is every day. 24-7, I'm into music. So I know I'm better at it than I was. Whether the people understand it or not, that's another story. How do you I'm not going to go too far out of uh, the tonality. How do you practice? I mean, when you start at the beginning of the day, you pick up your sax. Well, I keep them on a stand ready all the time. When I think of something, I pick it up and practice. You practice your tone, long tones. You practice sequences, chord sequences, changes. You practice the different songs that you have to play because they each have a different uh, chord structure. Like if I was playing a standard song, like uh, Jerome Kern's All the Things You Are. I've played that song many years. Some people have transcribed my solos and written them out. But if you play a composition that you really know, you can create differently every time you play it because you know it so well. Well, I tried this the last time. Let me try something else. And you uh, develop a certain level of improvisation that gets higher and higher level, and you could do what you want. You spur of the moment, you hear the piano player do something, and you pick up on what he does. You have your ears open as an improvising musician, and we play off of each other. If he says, dun, 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 and I say, bup, 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 dun, dun, I catch up with what he's playing. How do you keep from falling into a rut and sort of doing the same type of little things in your improvisation? Well, everybody has cliches that they re refer to. As you have those in your data bank and you refer to them. Everybody has, but you try your best not 
to repeat yourself. Um, you know, the great improvisers were the people who didn't repeat themselves much. And the same thing with your composing. Do you ever sit mm -hmm. down and write something and you're almost finished and you think, oh, wait, this is just like something I wrote five years ago? Yeah, and then you have to, well, over a period of years, you learn how to change a note here or there and make it a different song. The, you ch change the, the rhythm of it or the notes themselves, you know, because after all, all of the music of Bach, Beethoven, or whoever, Stravinsky, and all the jazz music that's been written for all these years, we all use the same chromatic 12-tone scale. And how you can come up with a different song out of that, it amazes me, but people do every day. How often do you perform now? Well, I'm performing quite a bit this year. Um, I'm going out to Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm going to San Francisco, um, 11th and 12th, 13th, 14th of March, and I'm going to Europe in June to Holland to play with their big band in uh, uh, The Hague, um, Benny Golson and myself. Benny's a Philadelphia saxophonist who happened to play in my band back in the day, he and Coltrane. And Benny's a great orchestrator and uh, composer. And they're going to have us both on this program, maybe a, uh, an hour of each of us, with a big band over there. They have big bands in Europe that are radio bands that have been going on for years. You know, We don't have them here like we should in America, where the music was created. But they do, you know. What has kept it new and fresh for you for so many years? Well, I'm always learning new things. There's, the, you know, music is forever. It was here when we came here and be here when we die and we're gone. And it's always, it behooves me to, to try to create something different and add my take on whatever I play. And... You know, once you achieve a certain sound that's individual and people can recognize you, then you got it made. Like uh, if Stan Getz plays on a record, I know him. I can tell. If Dizzy plays on a record, I know him. He's got a sound. If Coltrane plays on a record, I know that sound. And once you get an identity, then people look for your next offering. We are out of time. We've been talking to Jimmy Heath. He is the author of his autobiography, I Walked with Giants. Jimmy Heath, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.